Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Well, hello, you two. Hey. Uh, hey. <laughs> what is the latest, Sarah? I know that um, you wrote, just wrote something about Grandparents' Day. I don't know if that's something you feel like talking about. or. I mean, we survived it. I mean, I love my kids' teachers because they were both like, they knew it was going to be a hard day. Oh. Also, like due to COVID, other people have lost grandparents. Like maybe, maybe we just shouldn't do Grandparents' Day. I don't know. It's pretty rough. <laughs> Rain check on that this year. Rain check, but they but they got through it, which is good. And my aunt and Kim showed up, and that meant a lot. And yeah, we're just you know, I'm just like as I was saying uh, before we got on in such a bad mood, um, which I don't need anyone to tell me about the stages of grief and that this is anger, because um, I was angry before they both died, right? I mean, that came Unless pretty Unless they'd naturally. like to experience said anger. Unless they want to experience <laughs> To be it. recipients of said anger, then... This, this morning, I was like, I need you yoga pants, and I'm not buying them from Target. So I went to, like, Athleta or one of those places where they cost more than they do at Target. And I've never been in that store before, but it's, like, three minutes from my house. And I walked in, and I was like, I don't know if I'm a small or a medium. And then she, like, took a few steps back and looked at me. She's like, oh, like, as though it was a compliment. Oh, I think you're a small. And I go, we'll see. (laughs) So I'm a medium. Um, and, and I so just, I bought two pair. I did. And I just, I've just verbally accosted everyone. So right before I came into the room, Josh was like, well, this is going to be a really interesting episode, babe. Yeah. I, I feel like what's, what's bad for your uh, immediate surroundings is, <laughs> is good for radio. It's terrible for my mental health. It's good for the podcast. It's good for <laughs> ratings. RJ, what's going on in your world? Pretty good. Uh, it's a beautiful day here in South Florida. Wow. Um, yeah, we're getting, I think we're getting ready to move into a tent for Lent, move outside because we have too many people in our church. Not and your we family, of, your church. I was like, well, maybe whoa, both. buddy. Maybe both. Yeah. The Sukkot situation. Okay. Yeah. You're getting creative um, here. But I'm doing well. Uh, I'm a little concerned about my freshman in college, but we can talk about that later when we talk about the lack of casual relationships during the pandemic. Hmm. Um, but uh, except for that, I got to say, I, I I feel pretty good. So hmm. I apologize for that in advance. But <laughs> I, uh, I make but... everybody feel bad for like things going well in their life right now. They're like, I'm really sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm you tired. should be. I can't believe we're coming up on a year. Like, it's been 11 months since everything shut down, which is just yeah. crazy. Um, but yeah, generally, generally, I'm doing okay. How about you, Dave? I'm all right. You know, it's <laughs> we had a great snowstorm here, which yeah, resulted in a jealous. lot of sledding, which is pretty great. But 
I don't know. It's uh, it's funny. I, I, this is the second time we've recorded it right after I've had like one of my online therapy calls, and it's I, I feel so like weird. I feel like kind of talked out. You know, right. I don't, I've got nothing to say to you guys. It's everything's so totally serene and interesting. <laughs> I schedule um, my therapy like not on days I record the podcast for that reason. So yeah, ah, <laughs> like I well, schedule my therapy around this podcast. Like I don't know what that says about what we do here, but. You will bring your full crazy to the podcast. Yeah, like, I'm no, not. no serenity. Mm-mm. No, that's not good for ratings. Mm-mm. That's not. No. Well, it's not going <laughs> to help anybody, right? Like so. <laughs> that's right. That's pro right. tip. Pro tip from pro Sarah tip. Condon. That's right. um, well, it is good to be back, and uh, we've got tons of stuff to talk about today. Um, the first thing is what RJ you just mentioned is that the pandemic has erased entire categories of friendship, at least according to Amanda Mull in the Atlantic. She writes that during the past year, it's often felt like the pandemic has come for all but the closest of my close ties. There are people on the outer outer periphery of my life for whom the concept of, quote, keeping up makes little sense. But there are also lots of friends and acquaintances, people I could theoretically hang out with outdoors or see on video chat, but uh, with whom these those tools just don't feel right. Uh, She goes on to say that close relationships have long been thought to be an essential component of human social well-being, but new research has led to a counterintuitive conclusion that casual friends and acquaintances can be as important to well-being as family, romantic partners, and your closest friends. For example... Friendly chats between customers and delivery guys, bartenders, or other service workers are rarer in the world of contact delivery and uh, curbside pickup. In normal times, those brief encounters tend to be good for tips and Yelp reviews, and they give otherwise rote interactions a more pleasant human texture for both parties, strip out the humanity, and there's nothing left but the transaction. The psychological effects of losing all but our closest ties can be profound. Peripheral connections tether us to the world at large. Without them, people sink into the compounding sameness of closed networks. Regular interaction with people outside our inner circle, quote, just makes us feel more like a part of a community or part of something bigger. People on the peripheries of our lives introduce us to new ideas, new information, new opportunities, and other new people. If variety is the spice of life, these relationships are the conduit for it. So... Yeah, I, this this hit home with me. I, I feel like I've, I do have, I do interact with some people on the periphery, and yet, a lot of a lot of the, a lot of peripheral relationships describe people that I know at church, who I, I just haven't just seen. That. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that sort of yeah. that what, what would we call it? The cloud of saints that's right. out there yes. that you you really love and look forward to seeing, but you're also that's the context you know them in and that's the right. context where you feel comfortable. Yes, there are also people like exercise class people or, um, you know, parents of other children at the extracurriculars that your kids go to or on the sidelines or stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it is a net, it is certainly a net loss to, to be removed, to have that, 100%. that circle, that echelon of acquaintances. I, I think acquaintance is a, is a good word here. Um, I, and I've noticed that, especially among the college students that I work with, they're they're yeah. keeping up with their close friends, but there's none of the sort of walking across campus and like, you know, you memorize the, the route of the girl you have a crush on and you sort of just bump into her one day or like the, 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 the strange dude who always wears shorts, like, you know where he's going to be. And that, that sort of that net effect makes you feel part of something bigger. And without that, you're just sitting in an apartment you know, basically chatting with people on your phone while doing Zoom on your computer. Um, and there is a real, there is a real grief it's to terrible. that, I think. 
Yeah. What, what did it bring up for you guys? Um, it was a similar thing. Like I've heard my students say that, um, and especially with rice students, cause the kind of work that they're doing is, is so high level that like they really counted on those like chance interactions where they would see somebody from a class and be like, Oh, are you working on They're all, I don't know what these are, but they're always talking about problem sets. Uh, and yeah. so are you working on the problem sets for such and such course? And that's kind of how they, you know, got a lot of their work done. Um, sure. and that, that, and that for them is also like deeply social. Right. And, and that that's gone. Um, but I mean, honestly, like some of this is a little bit of a relief for me right now. Um, mm. I think I did miss these interactions, but because, any interaction beyond probably four or five people demands some emotional work for me. It's a little bit of a relief right now, which I feel bad about. Mm. It's like, but like I went to back to church. I've been a couple times, but I went back to our like uh, Sunday afternoon outside on a soccer field service, which is the one that the most people go to. And then we're like, it was this weird thing of like sitting in the chair and seeing those people, Dave, I know exactly, like I can see, I know who they are, who really the place I see them at is at church. And because typically we went to church every week, I would see them every week. And it was like, my hands wanted to reach out to them, but like, I just don't even have the, the energy right now to like say their names, to call them over. And I think because of what I've been through, people are more hesitant to approach me, um, so it just felt like weirdly sad and isolated and also a relief. Like it was just huh. kind of all these things at once. Everything um, right at once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And part of that is like, I don't know what people will say to me when they see me. Right. Like I've like, they're like a lot of people don't say anything when they interact with me because I think it's too much for them to uh, bear. And then other people will say things like, I haven't seen you since the accident happened. And that's, you know, also not easy. So it's just, I mean, I'm kind of like, yeah, I guess I'm weirdly relieved that we don't have these social interactions right now. Um, But I know that's not normal. Is it less a matter of people not saying the right thing and more of just a matter of people just not needing to say anything at all? Because I wonder in your this is maybe a burden to put on you, but you can say it for, for everyone who's listening. What is what what would be a, a greeting or or something to say? I mean, people who've said I don't I don't know what to say, like that's really helpful. People mm. who say, "Oh my god, this is like the worst thing." I'm like, "Yeah, this is the worst thing. Thank you for saying that." Um those those are actually really helpful. It it is it is unhelpful when people don't say anything. Mm. Um I mean, that, that's hard, right? Um, I actually had an interaction with an, um, a neighbor uh, who just moved into our neighborhood. And she was apologizing for like, oh, like a long time. Uh, probably not that long, but it felt long to me because your brain is just not there when you're grieving this much. And about construction vehicles in front of her house. And she was like apologizing to me and telling me all the work they're having done. And, blah, 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 blah. and I just said... <laughs> I guess no one told you what happened. And she was like, what happened? And I was like, both my parents died in a car accident in December. And she was like, oh. (laughs) And it was just like, 
really awkward and then she kind of didn't talk to me much after that it was just weird and hard but like yeah i feel like maybe it would suit people better if i just had a shirt on that was like hey uh it was really awful you could just say that out loud i don't know i mean i you know it's complicated because i'm in this like really bad mood right now where like i feel like no one can do anything right so just pray for josh I always do. Is it? I mean, I, I never, I never stop. <laughs> <laughs> done, done. <laughs> anyway, it's almost better not saying anything at all, and that's what's hard for people, and that's why I try to right. grace them because people don't know what's stupid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're scared like, to any, death. Anything related to like just cling to the happy memories, like I want to hit you in the face, mm. you know, um, that that's probably the hardest, most well-meaning thing people say to me is like, remember the like literally people have said, remember the good times, and I'm like, these aren't college friends, but thank you, you know, um, and I would have preferred to have never heard that. So I that and that honestly, RJ, that is why I try to have a lot of like grace and like um, mercy in these interactions because. It's so hard to say the right thing. So just nothing Gosh. directive or positive, basically. And you can say anything. Just don't say anything direct, for, like telling you to do something or, or right. being positive. Or, and don't be positive. Oh, my God. All these people yes. who have been positive. I'm like, oh, my gosh, please. You yeah. know. I just yeah. keep thinking of the, the – I probably said this the last podcast because I think about it so much. The Fran Leibowitz special, you know, pretend it's a city. I just want to say to people, pretend both your parents died. You know what I mean? Like that's your starting point, and then talk out of that. Like it's like it's just um, it's it's so crazy how our own stuff comes up in these situations. I mean, it's it's unfortunate, but it's also maybe compassion-inducing. I just remember someone that I was close to losing a parent very suddenly, and uh, you know, you're so flabbergasted in that situation. Uh, and I've been thinking about this in light of what's happened to you, but. The res- my response looking back was to sort of clamp down a little bit and mm-hmm. to want to, after a while, like to, to, to sort of be a little directive. Mm-hmm. And I, I regret that. Like, I, I just think oh. that that's, uh, you, well, it, 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 we learn these things. There's no, you, you know, do. You, I mean, there, Dave, there's no college course yeah. on it. You know? No, I mean, one thing I keep thinking of is one of my cousins who I was very close to as a child uh, got divorced really early, like in her marriage, like no kids. Like, I, I don't know if they were married a year. I got really, you know, really, really early got divorced. And Josh and I had gotten married around the same time, and I backed up three states. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, I don't want to catch whatever divorce juju you have, you know? And, like, <laughs> that was a terrible thing to do. Like, and it, it actually, like, those things, those moments for me have also, like, risen to the top in the midst of this. Of, like, when did I back up when people were suffering when I should have, like, gone closer in, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it's a really, it's... Uh, I, I don't think there's a total roadmap outside of... I don't think there is either. Don't bail if you can possibly not bail. Right. While also, um, you know, <laughs> try not to work out your own... I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't even know. I don't even know what the lesson is. But I would say that... Just don't try to make yourself feel better. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that's it. Really, yes. yeah, that's it. I would yeah. say that, like the yeah. t- the, the tendency, and maybe this is a, I, I'm always told this is such a male thing, but to want to fix it and someone's oh, sadness, yeah. and maybe that's just trying to cheer them up, or maybe oh, yeah. that's trying to help them get to some counseling or something like that. But that alienates it. It alienates even if even if the intention is pure love, you know. Yeah. But RJ, what did what do you think about the article? Yes. Effect? Sorry. Well, I before I do that, the, the last journey. thing, the last thing I thought, what, what did they say about Seinfeld? Uh, no learning, 
no hugging, you know, no, like maybe that's the, just, just be, just be signed. That might be There's really nothing, good grief advice, actually. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing will be learned here. Nothing needs to be learned here. Nothing needs to be you know? learned here. There might need to be laughter a little bit yes. or, or gallows humor or, but no learning. Laughter's so important. No catharsis. Yeah. No nothing. Yeah. Just, just, uh, just hang in there. Just yeah. show up and show up in Jerry's apartment and eat his Wear cereal. your weird 90s you know? jeans. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're yeah. RJ, make sure you have a beret on while it's happening. Ooh. I'm wearing a, I got one on right now. <laughs> um, but this article, uh, it, it just reminds me, first of all, my, my therapist said the exact same thing a few months ago, that we underestimate the impact of not having casual, positive social interactions with yeah. the cash register at the grocery store or just smiling at people. You, you, can't, you can't see if someone's smiling. You know, and it's weird as it's weird to preach to a bunch of people whose faces you can't see, you know, and then also when I uh, when I've met someone in church with a mask on and then I meet them later on outside or something at, at a distance or not wearing a mask. I'm like, oh, there you are. That's what you look like. I had no idea what you looked like. I knew what your eyes looked like, but not your face. It's very strange. So strange. Um, but I think it's also one of the reasons, you know, we are we're one of the few churches, Episcopal churches in our area that is meeting um, in person and not just virtually, because I think it's it's important even if you're wearing a mask just to be around other people, you know, and other people you don't you don't know. And I think that's such an important thing right now. Um, but as I alluded to, with regard to my oldest son, man, I just uh, I grieve for him. You know, he he didn't have the second semester or senior year in high school that he deserved mm-hmm. after working so hard. You know, there was no prom. There was one party that happened before everything shut down, um, but didn't get to enjoy just being on campus with nothing to do and kind of screwing around. And now freshman year college, um, you know, he had a roommate, which didn't work out. This particular person, I think, had some substance abuse issues, some mental health issues, was actually a little bit threatening. And so he moved to a different dorm this semester. So now he's in a dorm where he doesn't know anybody. He has no roommate only ha- like the campus is not even half full. All of his right. classes are online. Um, his best, his really, a good friend he did make, he, fa- he just found out is going home because he's not doing well just psychologically and his grades sure. aren't good. His, his other, his other best friend has like a joined at the hip girlfriend. So he never sees him, you know, and my son's a social, like great guy, but my wife called me the other day and, and Jackson was like, I have not, I've not interacted with another person today. Ugh. Like, you know, physically. Physically. Yeah. Yeah. And I sent him a text. I was like, hey, dude, if you need us to send buy you a ticket or you just want to come home, like, I'll do that tomorrow. You let me know. And so far, he's trying to stick it out. He's, you know, he's, he's getting out there, meeting people in his dorm, but it just is awful. And talk about, you know, freshman year college is, is, is casual friendship central. Yeah. You know, that's all it is. That's it's all just it like is. you're, and he, he even texted me. He's like, well, you know, I, I looked up this Reddit page in my dorm and all these articles are like, you know, Half the people at my wedding party I met freshman year in that dorm, you know, and it's he just feels like he's completely missing out on building his base of social relationships that are going to carry him through the next four years and maybe through the rest of his life. And I don't want to be too doom and gloom because it's going to be okay, but it just sucks. It just sucks, you know. It just sucks. And um, Sarah, there's there's your T-shirt right there. It just just sucks. sucks. It just sucks. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. You get in the pool and it just sucks. Those yeah. are the two podcast. Yes. Uh, we really t-shirts. do underestimate though these what what seem like kind of yes. me- meaningless interactions. I like that she says your humanity is mirrored back to you countless times a day, and when yeah. that's, when that when that's not happening, 
Um, people are already lonely enough as it is. Um, yeah. I mean, I was I was thinking about how, um, you know, it, it's such a grace is it, it, when it comes to us is almost always feels like something new or something mm-hmm. unexpected. Mm-hmm. And to so to be, she said, the compounding sameness of just interacting with the same 10 people who you maybe you love and maybe are wonderful to you, but there's none of the there's all these blocks against the sort of just blindsided uh, entry to your life where, where you kind of just are thrown for a loop and maybe, uh, you know, you're off your horse, for example. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say that's been helpful for me with some of these interactions, and I actually just did this today, um, because of what has happened to me, I think, well, I know I'm just a lot less filtered and I was already not filtered. Um, like I was at Target today and the lady was like, you know, helping me buy things and putting things in cards. And I was like, Hey, has your family been impacted by COVID? And she was like, Oh yeah. My grandfather died two weeks ago. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And like, so I, I, I understand that like, we're not having that regular kind of rhythm, but and we're in masks, but like as much as we can remember that, especially these people that are like helping us buy stuff and our frontline workers are like out there doing this work, like, you know, ask some questions about themselves. Like I, my experience has been like, they, they, they have very little of that. And so they're, they want to talk, you know? Um, but I also just like, for me, that's probably more of like a specific practice right now. of just wanting to get out of my head. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... Well, speaking of buying cards, I think we can move on to the next item. I can't wait for this. Sarah, is, uh, this is our Valentine's Day episode, so I'm glad this you tuned in. This is our Valentine's in. Day. Ooh, sexy Ooh. The Toronto Star. Mm. Get a glass of wine. The Toronto Star recently asked the question, which is on everyone's mind. Are people having more sex during the pandemic? New research from the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University suggests that the pandemic has had an effect on sex, but not in the way people thought it might. The study details how in the United States, about 40% of people surveyed reported that they were having less, and most reported that they were less satisfied with their sex lives. When it comes to married people, work pajamas aren't exactly a turn-on, and that while quality time is important, months of non-stop togetherness could breed contempt. If you think about young parents homeschooling their children, you think of a lack of privacy, says Natalie Rosen, a psychology professor at Dalhousie University. And on top of that, our space has changed. People are working in their bedrooms, which used to be their sexy space, but now they're staring at their computer and all these things that can interfere with sex and contribute to low desire. The McKinsey study noted that parents with young children have experienced the biggest decline here. Uh, and uh, says uh, one, uh, one commenter says, I can say anecdotally at least that a lot of these people, young parents, are just in survival mode and are trying to get through each day, especially if their kids are learning from home and don't have extra help. Now, why talk about that this week? Sarah, take it so, away. So, the last time, the last <laughs> time I was home, I was like, it's time to deal with my parents' desk. And my parents are self-employed. All their lives were in their desks. So that was like a whole thing. And I opened up my top drawer of my dad's desk and it is full of cards from my mom. And they are all sexy Lexi cards. <laughs> 
I mean, they are like, like, I just pulled them up so I could read. So, like, one of them has this, like, very 90s lady. I mean, we're on brand with uh, Seinfeld. Um, with, like, curly, crazy blonde hair and this little off-the-shoulder kimono look. And she says, if you think all I want is sex on Valentine's Day, you're wrong. And then you open up the card and it says... I want it all the time. Deb, <laughs> Deborah. <laughs> um, and then um, this one really got me because I feel like this is like a niche genre. I don't know how she found it, but it's a sexy Father's Day card. So on the front, it's like this really like, again, 90s, which I'm here for their vibe, 90s mom. And it says, and she's having a cup of tea and it says, it's Father's Day, honey. And then inside it says, Let's have as much fun as we can without waking the kids. Love, Deborah. Um, so I did not know my mom gave my dad sexy cards. Um, I love what Dave said. He said, you know, your dad clearly always knew where he stood with your mom, um, which I think is such a beautiful when a lot of men don't. A my lot dad of men do not. Clearly did, which I love. Um, but I saw all these cards and I was like, it would never occurred to me to buy my husband one of these cards um mostly because uh i've never bought him one before and i didn't know who bought these cards like i when i started buying josh like you know birthday or whatever father's day cards like i will literally like early in our relationship when i was like really working on being a proverbs lady uh would go to like the christian section with a cross (laughs) like i would get him like bible verse cards not a a turn on (laughs) not a turn on nothing sexier than than christian cards you know whatever and you're my pearl of great price (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Josh is always like, thanks, babe. Um, but I saw these cards and I was like, I'm going to start getting my husband sexy cards. Uh, and so I thinking like this will be easy, right? Like we have a Hallmark store, like one of the big ones, uh, very close to our house. I went earlier this week. You guys, they don't make sexy cards anymore. Mm. No, they don't. They do not make them. Like, I scoured. I was in the aisle at Hallmark for 20 minutes. I then went down to Barnes & Noble thinking, like, hey, maybe they're, you know, like, wordy or something. Mm-mm. Nothing. I found two cards where objects on the front were touching. One was skeletons holding hands, which... What? <laughs> Might and it not didn't even say anything right on the inside. Yeah. A little close to home right now, too, folks. <laughs> and then the other one was two puffer fish like poisonous puffer fish kissing each other Mm. and it said pucker up it was it's (laughs) been rough i i told a friend about this i was like yeah i'm like on the lookout for a sexy card and she was like oh they they make those you just have to go to an adult toy store and i was like yeah i'm deaf not doing that but thank you for the advice um i'm happy to report this morning at target I did find kind of a sexy card. I found one. But what's interesting, and I I told Dave, is that they're kind of in two different genres, the cards are. They're either like, we're on an existential journey together as a couple cards, or they kind of make fun of the fact that there's no intimacy, which is really dark. So, like, there was one that I thought was going to be the genre I was looking for. And on the front, it said, we could go all night. 
And on the inside, there was an illustration of a couple sitting on a couch in front of a television. And it was like the Netflix queue for the next episode. You guys, it was so bleak. Mm. So, yeah, I'm just I'm fascinated that like this was the only clearly you could buy these in 1997. These cards at a Hallmark store. You didn't have to go someplace illicit. Right. And you you. I mean, I found I have probably spent a cumulative like hour looking for just not an over the top card, but just like a, hey, sometimes we have sex card, you know, and like <laughs> they are nowhere to be found. Interesting. Yeah. Sarah, right? I think you found your calling. I mean, I think I think I you need to bring just, sexy like, repurpose back. Repurpose some Sarah of my Condon. mom's '90s cards. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean they are pretty great. They they hit exactly the right note. I gotta say they're not lewd, but they're like very. If I was a man receiving a card like that, I, I there's no question that I would be much more excited. I'd be much more excited than if I got something about Jesus dying for my sins. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> uh, it, it's or or even the, the head of the Proverbs 41 head of the house. Just like early in our marriage, I was just like, "This is what Christian wives do." I don't know, babe. <laughs> hey, babe, I bought a field for. I bought a field for you. I'm sitting. I'm sitting at the, t- well, at the city you know, gate we, selling. We, we've talked about it though you. in other cases. In that, like yeah. the the internet culture has led to less sex, and in a, in a way that's led to less like sort of teenage pregnancies. And there's some good things about that, but sure. in, especially, I mean, you're talking about married couples not being able to find cards like this. It's like, w- w- at what point do you just? Um, a- a- there was a very the SNL had a very funny like. Uh, spoof of it like i think last week where it was uh, on, on valentine's day instead of you know getting intimate you do what people in their 30s really like to do and that's like go on zillow and like yeah. you have all these people sort of just very 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 excited sort of overly excited about zillow and you wonder like something about i think it's a combination of the non-stop uh element of modern life that people are just tired and they're really tired. And I, then you have the pandemic. She says like, it's a being around each other nonstop is a recipe for, uh, she says contempt, but I would just say resentment. And I I always remember my therapist, Dorothy Martin. She always, (laughs) both good words, resent and contempt. She said that, you know, resentment is like pouring ice water on a bed. It's just like, mm. it is like pouring ice water on a bed and you'll start to, you'll think, oh, I'm not attracted to this person anymore. This is terrible. But it mm. turns out you're just angry at them and you haven't been able to express it in some way. And yeah. uh, and then you express it and then things uh, heat up again and you, you yeah. get, you're almost surprised. So it's, and you, you add on to that, like another phenomenon that was highlighted this week in that America's mothers are in crisis, like serious crisis, spiraling out of control, sad, depressed, wanting to have primal scream therapy sessions with other mothers because they're just at such wits end. And that does not, the very thing, which is you know, grace, and I would say that sort of just the unconditional acceptance that you, a person experiencing that kind of intimacy that you need is the last, is, is the sort of the thing you don't want when you're that tired, because it involves like 
being attentive to another person. It involves uh, physical, uh, uh. you know, activity and all of this stuff. It, it's, it feels like a bit of a catch twenty two, and maybe part of the curse of the pandemic is that the very thing people need is the last thing they're 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 actually looking for. So I don't know what that's a, actually an endorsement of, except for the fact that I think I, it, people send Sarah your cards within you know good taste. I think uh, yeah. We, I don't need naked people. I just need like something Elaine from Seinfeld would have drawn. Do you know what I mean? Like that's her genre. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I keep wondering about that myself. Like what is it about our lives that's sort of hardening us to one another? Like that there's no softness, um, you know, I, because uh. I think that's, I mean, I will say like uh, as mad as I am today, like everyone, um, I'm not mad at Josh. I mean, I just love him so much. And when I'm like really, and I have been just the past week, basically since I got back from a really brutal trip to, to clean out my parents' house, you know, he just, he's just right there. Um, in such a tender way. Cool. So I, you know, I just, I hope that for people because this kind of sarcasm about a lack of intimacy is such a scary coping mechanism to me. Mm. Um, I don't know, RJ, what do you think? I think, well, first, uh, there was another article this week I saw about how something like one-third of Japanese adults age 30 are virgins. You know, about that people, like, people in Japan really, really, really are not having sex and have no interest in it. And I've never been to Japan. I mean, my sense is it's a a hyper-connected internet, you know, media culture. And so you wonder if we're heading that direction too, in terms of, you know, declining birth rates or whatever. On the other hand, I will say, it seems like every young woman in our neighborhood is either pregnant Mm. or just had a baby. You know, if like there has, have you guys seen this in your neighborhood? I feel like there's been a, like the pandemic, there was sort of a pandemic baby boom a little bit. And now that we're 11 months in or whatever. Babies are being born. um, Yeah. Seems like a lot. Yeah, so I've seen that, and then I am also deeply thankful, <clears throat> especially that our four-year-old is in school full-time, you know, because he, even him being in school full-time, he still wears us out when he's home, but at least he's with somebody else for like seven hours a day, and that is hugely helpful, because I know other people who are not well, in that what situation. What did it make you feel about your, your actual parents? I mean, that they always um, modeled a sense of, like love for each other I guess I don't know it was like that they weren't afraid of saying that to each other um and what was interesting to me was like that they never would have said that in front of us you know what I mean but like that 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 was theirs and I think that's a thing that we we've lost in this era where we tell children everything you know Mm -hmm. um that they're like adults don't have like their own personal lives anymore um I mean, I remember my mom, like, when I was a kid and her explaining sex and her just being like, sometimes our door is locked and you need to leave it alone. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, she was just very clear. And I I think that's, like, not a hel- uh, an unhealthy way to, to talk about intimacy. And, you know, I, I but I didn't know any more than that. And then, like, here are all these cards. So, right. I don't know. There's just a sweetness between them that um, – that I'm only finding out about now. And I think that's exactly how it's supposed to work. Like there are some things that like we should get to hold on to as parenting adults. It's just between us and our children will find out about it, you know, when it's, when it's the right time, which is really when we're gone. So. Mm. 
But like, I guess uh, our generation's children will just like find they know cards, everything. <laughs> sad cards about Netflix. I don't. <laughs> I think the idea. I gotta say, I th- Sarah. I think the idea of having a lock, like the master bedroom door, having a lock, is a really good image because it should yeah. have. It should have a lock, right? There should be a place that like yeah. mom and dad can go, and be by themselves. But it also pushes back against what you're saying that that a hundred percent of our lives are yes. about the kids a hundred percent of the time. It's like no, there yeah. needs to be something for our marriage. And by right. the way, if our marriage isn't good, like no, remember last week, last you know, you, episode, you, yeah. we talked about how fam- familial estrangement has been almost driven. It seems to be like an increase in it by the sense that parents have to are completely responsible for their child's uh, happiness in life and everything to be everything. It was funny, you know, yeah. Jane Grizzle wrote a wonderful piece about this mom's crisis for us in which she 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 put a name to this actual sense of that everything is required for me at all times and she she confesses to having her first panic attack in like nine months she says on top of a year of fear anxiety and dread there's the pressure built within me to be a super mom parenting has always seemed to require more for our generation a need to be more involved more engaged more present but adding on the stress of safety health and the awkward conversations about who we could see where we could go navigating different levels of comfort with gathering parenting has become a constant state of anxiety for many the desire to be everything for my children, mm. I think that just became too much in the moment. She, she closed by saying that she was at a retreat once where the writer Katie Fox said that she felt that she was the center of her, of her family, and through it all, the center must hold, she must hold, but then she said something that struck with Jane, mm. and it's become sort of a daily slogan of hers throughout this year. The truth is God is the center, and we know he will hold. Um. Because this, it is a um, the, the the what a lot of these mothers are articulating, and maybe it's partly societal, it's partly you know individual or something like that. But they is the requirement that they be absolutely everything and give yeah. absolutely everything and hold nothing back. Like you just you just articulated your parents having a locked door and right. stuff correspondence that that was held only between them and that was privileged. Yeah, and that that actually being something that endeared them to you when you found out about it, and you were sort Absolutely. of grateful. It sounds to me like you were grateful you didn't know about it when you were younger. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think. I mean, I I wonder if 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 there is some. I don't know if there is something related to the fact that less parents our age have that kind of intimacy, and they feel like they have to share everything with their children. I don't know, you know, if there's some overlap there. I don't know what that's about. Well, and let's also say your parents may not have had that when, like, you yeah. were a small child. You know, like, that. that who knows, right? There's, there oh, there are seasons sure. to life. And, and the reality is when you have little kids, you yeah. are kind of exhausted. And that's, that's something to, you know, I remember Stu... Uh, Stu Shelby once saying this to me, who's a, just a wonderful priest in our sphere, um, that he was counseling, like, a young a young married man or, or a new father or something like that. And he said, who was who mourning the fact that his mm-hmm. sex life had kind of gone underground, <laughs> you know? And Stu was like, look, it's going to come back. But right now, like, your wife is giving everything to your newborn baby, like physically, emotionally, everything. And you just mm-hmm. need to be there for her. Like, you need to give to her the way that she's giving to this to the baby. It will come back. It's it, it's a season, right? Well, so one, um, one, one hopes. Anyway, um, but that's... <laughs> 
<laughs> one hope. One hopes. One hopes. That's right. But 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 certainly make you know certainly coming down on your spouse or making you know uh, completely unrealistic uh, demands is not going to help. Not going to well, help. That's, that's where along, the, the you know? like the, the bonds are actually um, forged so. in the sense that you've you've gotten the first time you go through something like that, like what they call a dry spell or just a huge fight. You think, oh my yes. goodness, we're doomed. We're never going to get yes. this. This is permanent. And, and then you, it's like with your children and the phases they go through. You comes to find out that the third or fourth time you've gone through this, you're like, oh, well, this will end, you know, um, or I, ho- I hope it will, we'll make it uh, you know, and, this and shall pass. by the grace of God. But yeah. one of the things I yeah. thought was really useful this week that appeared was also in the Atlantic by a guy named Jerry Useem, um about uh, a, a the, the wonderful headline was bring back the nervous breakdown, bring back the nervous breakdown. Mm. And he names some of the same factors. He says, right now, I think we can all agree Americans are once again living in a nervous time. Pandemic, wildfires, indefinite homeschooling, post-election political chaos, TikTok. Feelings of impending collapse have arguably never rested on firmer empirical ground. But today, we no longer have recourse to the culturally sanctioned respite that the nervous breakdown once afforded. For 80 years or so, proclaiming that you were having a nervous breakdown was a legitimized way of declaring a sort of temporary emotional bankruptcy in the face of modern life's stresses. John D. Rockefeller, Jane Addams, Max Weber all had acknowledged quote-unquote breakdowns and reemerged to do their best work. Provided you had the means, or rather, big proviso, uh, announcing a nervous breakdown gave you license to withdraw, claiming an excess of industry or sensitivity or some other virtue. And crucially, it focused the cause of distress on the outside world and its unmeetable demands. You weren't crazy, the world was. As a 1947 headline in the New York Herald Tribune put it, quote, modern world viewed as too much for man. Uh, He goes on, the very general and ill-defined characteristics of the nervous breakdown were its benefits, says Peter Stearns, a cultural historian at George Mason. It played a function we've lost, we've at least partially lost. You didn't have to visit a psychiatrist or psychologist to qualify for a nervous breakdown. You didn't need a specific cause. You were allowed to step away from normalcy. The breakdown also signaled a temporary loss of functioning, like a car breaking down. It may be in the shop, sometimes recurrently, but it didn't signal an inherited or permanent state, such as terms like bipolar or ADHD might signal today. The nervous breakdown was not a medical condition, but a sociological one. It provided sanction for a pause and reset that could put you back on track. But in a society reflexively suspicious of rest, getting a restorative break tends to require a formal mental health diagnosis. I, I love the term nervous breakdown. Let me. This is Dave speaking. I uh, I think it's fantastic. I think it actually is supremely useful um, because uh, and and I, I I support his desire to reclaim it. I think that and he surfaces the fact that in many cases there are um, diagnosable problems that are leading people to sort of have a complete you know falling apart, but. The term nervous breakdown, the admission that life is simply too much, life is overwhelming, it's um, it, it, it that would be wonderful if we could agree on that, and that this person just needs to uh, you know go, go get some fresh air for a week or something or or two weeks. You know, I think they quote a lot of people who've gone through this. Um, I mean, what a wonderful thing! Like, there's usually a breakthrough on the other side of a breakdown, and. Uh, we have lost that. Like we, we've lost something about it's seen as a, a breakdown is seen as a sign of weakness rather than a sign that modern life is unsustainable and crazy. Right. 
I just, it honestly, probably just because like I've been thinking about these like cards. It just feels like we don't want to go through hard things. Mm. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like we don't want to do the hard work of like real intimacy with a spouse. We don't do the, we don't want to do the hard work of like admitting that like our lives may need to fall apart for a month. Like we don't, you know, and that we can find a label for that. That's not like a permanent thing. Like I was around a friend this morning and I was saying to her like yesterday, I couldn't tell if I was sick or not, which is like, I don't know if that's normal when you're grieving, but, um, I just couldn't do anything. And like, then like about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, I was like, I think I'm sick. And that like made me feel better. Like I was like, Mm. this is not grief. Like I'm just sick. And then Today I woke up and I felt really, (laughs) my health felt good, but I was still like in a really bad mood. And she said to me, you are sick. Like your whole body is Mm. probably inflamed right now. It cannot figure out what's happening. You know, it's not always going to be like this, but you are sick right now. And I mean, I feel like if she'd had the, the language to say, you're having a nervous breakdown that would have been like really helpful, you know, mm. like it is, this is not a thing that will like, I won't always have to feel this way, but, um, there's something very like beautiful. And like, I'm watching a ton of Seinfeld cause it reminds me of my dad, which is why I keep talking about it. But, um, bring it uh, on bring something it on. very George Costanza to me about like, I'm having a nervous breakdown you know what <laughs> I mean? Like for a couple episodes and then I'll break up with her, you know, like, I don't know. I just, I love that. Towards the right. end of yeah, towards the break. end of this yeah, article, that yeah. he says maybe we could recover this by 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 a slipping in something more muscularly American, like call it a power break or a power up. <laughs> hey, boss, I need a power up. It's not an admission of weakness; it's a simple statement of facts. I think that is patently ridiculous, but I also. It's also kind of genius. But I also kind power, of genius. Like, I'm a little like a little Mario. That's what <laughs> yeah. I think of. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Yes, that's exactly what I thought of. Mm-hmm. Thought of. Yeah. I I love this article. Uh, a couple of my favorite things were how the author acknowledged that some of these people, like F. Scott Fitzgerald, like Rockefeller, who had these nervous breakdowns, did their best work after their nervous breakdown. Like they had to go away. They had to sort of get, they had to sort of die before they could be reborn, right? They had to be, they had to go be <laughs> little Mario before they could power up. And then, and then at the, uh, at the end of the article, I couldn't believe that apparently there are, there are a few, there are a couple of European countries who have made it a law that workers have the right not to respond to emails after work hours. And that like Daimler, this big German company, which is the parent of, um, Mercedes Benz actually has this function now where, um, if workers opt to, they can have emails that are sent to them while they're on vacation automatically deleted with a response that says, hey, this person's on vacation. You can either wait till they get back or if this is really important, find wow. someone else to deal with the problem. And I was just like, yeah. that is amazing. That's that's crazy. Um, but in general, I mean, I would love <laughs> to have a nervous breakdown. Like when it talked about when it talked about Rockefeller, you know, coming to the end of himself and needing to go to the south of France for six months. I was like, yes, please, I'll go to the south of France for six months, like tomorrow. But it does feel like I like I don't deserve it, or it feels like a very entitled thing to do, right? Because there are kids to be raised, and there are bills to be paid, and churches to be led, and blah 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 blah, and there is this fear. Um, that if I, you know, gosh, if I let myself go, like I might never come back. Um, 
but but combined with, I mean, I will say, you know, again, Nick Lannon, another person we have a com, you know uh, connection to, wonderful priest, once said, you know, every so often I just need to stay in bed all day and watch movies, you know, and then and then the next day I, f- I find I'm actually better, you know, it doesn't last forever, it's just like a day, and I'll say, I, you know, every couple times a year, I'm just like I don't know if I'm sick, I don't know what's going on, but no work's happening today, so I can either go in and beat myself up mm. or I can stay home and. You know, binge watch something dumb, and I'll probably feel a lot better for me. It's I'm, I'm just gonna listen you know, to Morrissey uh, all day and, and eat some Ben and Jerry's. Like that's the that, that's and, and Seinfeld. Exactly. Nothing and is more therapeutic than watching Seinfeld on repeat, Sarah. I I, find I mean, it. it's just been the lovely. No, and <laughs> and this ties into the this ties into the mom thing too, right? Like that I have to hold the center. I have to be the center. Sometimes all you actually need is just a good cry. Like a good cry can be, but you don't feel like you can, you know, that you, I read something or I listened to a presentation recently where someone was talking about, um, you know, doing therapy and this is a priest, but he worked with people who, who wanted therapy and they said, gosh, you know, I, I, um, on a scale of one to 10, I'm, I find myself constantly in a four to six, but I really want to get to like an eight or nine. Like, how can I get to an eight or nine? And this priest was saying, well, I can help you get to an eight or nine. But if you want to get to an eight or nine, you have to give yourself the space to experience mm. a one or two. And they're like, no, 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 no. That's not what I want. I want an eight or nine. I don't. He's like, no, no, you don't get it. You can't get the joy if you're not willing to experience the despair. But there's such a For fear, sure. right? If I let myself experience the despair, I will never come back. And it's not true, but it sort of, it takes, it takes, sometimes you can't help it. You have to just fall apart. But sometimes you have to have the faith to to let yourself go and know that there'll be a mm. a resurrection on the other side of the death, which you know, Sarah, honestly, that's what I feels like. Yeah, that's where you I are mean, today. I there are <laughs> you know? parts of this I hope I can keep, which is not a thing I would have expected. Mm. But like, mm. I'm so I mean, I'm deaf angry, but I'm so chill. Like, it's really hard to offend me. It's like really hard for me to get worked up over anything. Just yeah, don't talk don't about stages of grief. grief. Um, <laughs> or tell me I might be a small in yoga pants. Um, <laughs> like brontosaurus height. There's no way I'm a small. Um, but I, you know, I think about the mothering stuff a lot because, you know, I'm like any other mother in 2021. Like, right. There's all this guilt about like they're on a screen too much or, I should pick them up earlier or blah, 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 blah. And like a lot of that has gone away and, and maybe it'll resurface. I don't know, but I just like know that my kids need me, just me. And I know that like it's probably something about the weird despair, but, and hopefully I'm not creeping my kid out. But like yesterday, Annie was doing this like little puzzle and I just stared at her the whole time she did it. And I was just like, oh my God, she's so beautiful. I can't believe she's mine. And like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's parts of this experience uh, that I hope don't go away for me, Hmm. Um, which is a weird thing to say, but I don't know. Wow. I keep thinking about the um, the Seinfeld thing where they tried to reintroduce instead of saying Gesundheit when someone sneezes, they say, you're so good looking. 
<laughs> Jerry was always uh, disappointed that never never caught on as a catchphrase. But like anytime it's someone's hilarious. just like having a nervous breakdown or just having having falling apart, you're like, you're so good looking. <laughs> well, let's go from that into something slightly heavier. Uh, there's a new book out by Tish Harrison Warren uh, called Prayer in the Night. And we've written about it on Mockingbird. It sounds quite fabulous, at least according to the, uh, the, um, the excerpt that was run on a website called Renovare, uh, which is How to Pray While Drowning in Doubt. And this is, uh, she's writing about her own sort of horrific year where um, they'd moved, her father died suddenly, she had a miscarriage, and then another miscarriage. And it was just sort of a life just uh, pummeling her. Uh, it's in 2017, I think, she says, During that long year, as autumn brought darkening days and frost settled in, I was a priest who couldn't pray. And she's ordained. I didn't know how to approach God anymore. There were too many things to say, too many questions without answers. My depth of pain overshadowed my ability with words, and more painfully, I couldn't pray because I wasn't sure how to trust God. Martin Luther wrote about seasons of devastation of faith, when uh, any naive confidence in the goodness of God withers. It's then that we meet what he calls the left hand of God. Then she moves on to talking about nighttime. She says, there's much to love about the night. Nightingale song and candlelight, the sparkling city or the crackling of a fire as stars creep across the sky, the sun descending into the horizon. Yet each of us begins to feel vulnerable if the darkness is too deep or lasts too long. In deep darkness, even the strongest among us are small and defenseless. There's a reason horror movies are usually set at night. We can speak of vulnerability as something we choose. We decide whether to, quote, let ourselves be vulnerable through sharing or withholding our truest selves, our stories, opinions, or feelings. In this sense, vulnerability means emotional exposure or honesty. But this isn't the kind of vulnerability I mean. Instead, I mean the unchosen vulnerability that we all carry, whether we admit it or not. The term vulnerable comes from a Latin word meaning to wound. We are woundable. We can be hurt and destroyed in body, mind, and soul. All of us, every last man, woman, and child, bear this kind of vulnerability till our dying day. And every 24 hours, nighttime gives us a chance to practice embracing our own vulnerability. I'll stop there and we'll get to the, her part on prayer. I thought that that vulnerability has become such a buzzword. and um, But I, one of the things the pandemic has reminded us all is how vulnerable we are in the sense of woundable, how much things can be taken away that we took for granted, how much um, how we're sitting ducks in a lot of ways to the right um, temptation, the right problem at the right time. People are woundable. We are, we are mortal is another way to say it, but woundable is, is something that's not, that's not sexy, frankly. It's, it's uh, deeply um, scary and frightening. Uh, but to be woundable, she's, uh, we'll get further into her article, but she talks about that vulnerability in nighttime uh, being actually a place where you meet God in a different way. Um, what do, what are what are your thoughts before we carry on with this article? Man, I don't know. Um, that is really heavy. This idea that like we're we're woundable and vulnerable, and I'd never thought about how like the word vulnerable gets used so much in self help right now, and yet also it gets used like it, like a nonprofit for you know homeless children like protect the most vulnerable. Like, I never thought about like, the usage of the word vulnerable as being, like, one of privilege and one of not, which is interesting to me. Um, 
you know, I was, <laughs> I was just thinking about, uh, I was in the Whole Foods parking lot, uh, this morning. I, d- I did a lot of errands this morning so I could leave my poor husband alone. And, um, the car next to me had someone sleeping in it. And I was so struck by the juxtaposition of being in a Whole Foods parking lot where like it's filled with white ladies like me in yoga pants who are like, I'm feeling like I need to be more vulnerable, you know, (laughs) with someone in the parking lot who's actually deeply vulnerable. Right. Um, So that's I don't know. That's 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 interesting to me. Like I um, I think, you know, a lot of the work I've had to do, my aunt and I sorted uh, photos and family documents for 14 hours uh, last Thursday. Oh. And to see kind of um, the vulnerability of, of my parents as, as like small children. And um, my mom has this. You can totally cut this. I can't get it out of my head, so I'm just going to say it. My mom has this stuffed animal. And it is a very weird looking stuffed animal. It uh, is a monkey and it has not aged well. And, um, when my mom's dad killed himself, she was a toddler and, uh, an aunt, one of my mother's aunts came through and decided that my mom was too attached to stuffed animals and she took all of them away from her. So my mother was like very, even as an adult, like bought stuffed animals, like love stuffed animals, um, in kind of an unusual way. And so so it's hard for me to get rid of these weird childhood. I mean, you can imagine right now they're 60 years old, right? Mm. And I found a photo of her. So the monkey's name is Kim. And I found a photo of my mom and she's like four years old and she's holding Kim and she's so happy. And I can see that Kim was like this beautiful lovey, you know, that my mom had and, She's so vulnerable. I don't know. It, it, it's like that word just keeps coming to mind and that image does. And um, and it's probably not related at all, but I sometimes I just have to say things so I don't think about them anymore. I don't know. I mean, I, mm. I, I love that, that Tish is like helping us re-examine this word because um, I feel like it's been taken over by Instagram culture and we don't really know what it means anymore. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about it in terms of um, marriage and then in terms of church, that it does strike me that when you're, you know, when you're in conflict with your spouse, you maybe cease to see them as someone vulnerable, yeah. right? So someone who's either vulnerable to things that you could say, like that you really could hurt them, or vulnerable to fatigue, anger, you know, uh, hormones, sadness, Hunger. like whatever it might be. That, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah. that, you know, that you could say things that could hurt them and, and they might say things that hurt you because they're a human in the world and, and they're vulnerable to all sorts of, um, you know, passions and emotions and whatever. So I think it's, it's helpful to recapture that in your relationships. Um, and then, I don't know, in church, honestly, it's, it's, it's not hard for me to see my parishioners as as vulnerable, right? As as people, as as human beings. And I feel like part of my calling is to love them in the midst of their vulnerability. But the thing I wonder is what what does it mean to lead from a place of of vulnerability? Mm. Like acknowledging my my own and not have to sort of have it all together all the time. But also not um open myself up to you know, to destruction. Mm. <laughs> um and so I, I don't 
it's tough to figure out how to be a, a, a full, whole person in the world, you know, both in relationships of, of, of love and then in more, you know, professional relationships, whatever that looks like, whether you, you live, you work in a secular context or a religious, um, religious context and how to be merciful with yourself as a vulnerable person to give yourself permission not to have it mm. all together. Well, what, 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 what so, Tish um, counsels here is prayer in fact, but not the, not your, not, that's well, not, your, <laughs> <laughs> not your own, uh, not prayer that sort of relies on your own ability to be vulnerable in the right ways. And she, I thought, I love this section. She says, for most of my life, I didn't know there were different kinds of prayer. Uh, prayer meant one thing only, talking to God with words I came up with. Prayer was wordy, unscripted, self-expressive, spontaneous, and original. And I still pray this way every day. Free-form prayer is a good and indispensable way to pray. But Stanley Hauervoss has an important rejoinder. He says, the theologian, he says, evangelicalism is constantly under the burden of reinventing the wheel, and you just get tired. That's why he calls himself an advocate for reciting written prayers, because we don't have to make it up. We know we're, we're going to say, uh -huh. we know we're going to say these prayers. We know we're going to join in reading of the psalm. We're going to have these scripture readings. Then back to Tish. She says, when my strength waned and my words ran dry, I needed to fall into a way of belief that carried me. I needed other people's prayers. I needed words to contain my sadness and fear. I needed comfort, but I needed the sort of comfort that doesn't pretend that things are shiny or safe or right in the world. I needed a comfort that looked unflinchingly at loss and death. And she found that she's in Compline, the Anglican service of Compline, which is like nighttime prayer, not just evening prayer. And she talks about the service of Compline. She says, it begins with the Lord Almighty grant us a peaceful night and a perfect end. A perfect end of what, she writes. I think the day, the week, my life. We pray into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. The words Jesus spoke as he was dying. We pray, be our light in the darkness, O Lord, and in your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. Because we are admitting that the thing that left on my own, I go to great lengths to avoid facing, that there are perils and dangers in the night. We end this service of Compline by praying that awake we may watch with Christ and asleep we may rest in peace. Rest in peace. When we're drowning and need a lifeline and our lifeline in grief cannot be more optimism that maybe our circumstances will improve because we know that may not be true. During that difficult year, I didn't know how to hold to both God and the awful reality of human vulnerability. What I found was that it was the prayers and practices of the church that allowed me to hold to, or rather, to be held by God when little else seems sturdy. She ends by reciting the prayer, the, the final prayer from Compline, which is a beautiful one. It's, keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night, and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ, give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Amen. I love the shield the joyous. I use that a lot with kids. I think that I always think that that prayer was intentionally meant for children. Um, uh. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I have two thoughts about this, and I'm in such a contrarian mood, so don't listen to me. Um, I totally get what she's saying, um, and... I believe it and it has been helpful for me to understand that when, even when my belief could not reach all the way there in the midst of the loss I have suffered, that there are people believing people around me who fill that gap. 
<laughs> and, you know, I mean, for me, a, a huge, huge problem initially was seeing my parents in heaven. That was a huge problem for me. Like, because imagine, like, your parents both die, and then everyone's like, they're in heaven, you know? And you're just like, what does that mean? And I feel like my mom is definitely, like, yelling, and I'm just like, what is this, you know? Like, what does this look like? And my husband said to me, um, you know, they're, they, they got to heaven and they were their most beautiful whole selves and they looked at each other and they said, Oh, there you are, you know? And he was able to offer that to me in a way that I was able to receive it. And I, and I could think to myself, Oh, even if I can't hold on to that belief this early, you can, but I gotta say, like, church prayers are not doing much for me right now. I'm glad it's worked for her. But I mean, like I pray every night at my bedside on my knees, the way my meanwhile did. And most nights I put both my elbows on the bed and I say, I miss them so much. Please let me dream about them. Please protect my children and let them know that they're loved. Amen. So, I don't, for me, there's not anything in the prayer book that can reach me where I am right now. There's just not. And maybe that makes me a bad priest, and we all knew that to begin with. But I just, like, I can't, I need, I, yeah. it's, the, the pain is so intimate right now and so desperate that it just, uh, it's, I just, that's, I, I say that every night now, so... I'm kind of with you, Sarah. Um, I thought it was interesting when she was talking about uh, how great saints of the past have risen in the middle of the night to pray. And, and it was kind of the way she presented it, maybe I'm reading this wrong, was almost like they, um, it was sort of a discipline that they uh, submitted to. But I don't think so. I think they got up in the middle of the night to pray because they couldn't sleep. Yeah. Because they were sad and stressed and human and you know, woke up as many of us are doing these days, um, with, with thoughts and fears, uh, to which they're, are vulnerable, which they can't control. And the middle of the night is when you are most vulnerable to, to those things. Um, but when I'm woken up in the middle of the night with, uh, fears that I can't control or my mind racing, I think, and I do pray. Yeah. I'm not praying from the prayer book and sometimes I'm not even praying at all. I think what I think about always is what, uh, Paul's writes in Romans that, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words, because God knows um, what we need and prays for us when we cannot pray for ourselves. Um, and that's where I find comfort and hope, because it's not, I don't know, finding the right words, I don't know. Sometimes all you can do is groan, right? Um, mm, yeah. So that's, yeah. I don't know, That's that. those are the prayers I offer up at in the in the middle of the in the middle of well the i think she was uh one of the things she she writes in there is that she had a friend who came to the church where they were doing a prayer book service and the person was like i can't relate to this it's it's all yeah. other people's prayers uh when you're when you're writing and i think that um that that is beautiful that when i don't know how to pray or i don't know what to pray or i feel like i'm praying mm. the wrong thing because i want i'm praying i'm praying for the ability to pray um yeah that there are there are things I could fall back on. You know, sometimes I, I we've talked about it before, but when I watch um young people 
want to get getting married these days and like they're they have to they're like they don't want to get married in the church they don't want to use the prayer book service they want to like rewrite it completely from scratch and you want to say at, at first that sounds like a great idea but they soon realize they have to construct an entire metaphysics and spiritual reality from the ground up and it's very exhausting yeah. and so yeah i mean and i would just say i want to say a word of advice to all of our listeners who are you know, looking to plan a non-Christian wedding and need some texts. I'm sure there's a lot of them out there. A ton of them. Um, uh, go to Hallmark because <laughs> all the Valentine's Day cards are basically just Creed, uh, little creeds. bad promises to your spouse that you'll never be able to fulfill. So um, <laughs> that's where you need to start if you're writing a non-religious wedding but, liturgy. But that have no mention of sort of the incarnational side of the relationship, shall no. we say. No, no, no. no. <laughs> if you want an intimacy-free romantic marriage that puts you on a journey with your soulmate liturgy, start in the Hallmark Valentine's Day card section. Let's look quite literally the, the Hallmark idea of of marriage, right? Isn't that what it's sort of called now? Um, well, that's, it's a very, very, I think it's very actually fruitful to, to put these things in discussion because as we've seen, there is no right way to, right way to grieve. There, there are, yeah. there's no, um, that sometimes all, there all, all we can do is hope that someone else believes these things for us in the midst of that. I think yeah. it's beautiful what you said about Josh. Um, mm. I, I saw, saw someone, uh, I was reading some quote, I forget where it was from, but they're, they're, they're saying, how can I even imagine what heaven's like? It's taken me like 80 years to imagine what this world is like. <laughs> like yeah. It's too impossible. It's too big. Um, yeah. it's too glorious that otherwise it wouldn't be heaven. You know, if, yeah. if it was something I could grasp or I'm project. just hoping it's Coco, y'all. That's all. I just need it to be like Coco, and that will make me feel better. And <laughs> that's all I need. Like every time I think about it, I just think that you know, they're just that's where they are. And oh God, yeah. I love that movie. Um, mm-hmm. RJ, any closing thoughts from you? No, no. not really. Nothing. No. Valentine's advice, RJ. No, I talked with Jamie. I was like. <laughs> She's like, let's just try to do something next week, whatever. We're over it. 21 years in, we're, we're you know, we, we, we find our romance elsewhere, not on the uh, societally prescribed days. I think the best, so we'll the best Valentine's Day advice comes from the movie The Last Days of Disco, where the Kate Beckinsale character uh, turns to Chloe Sevigny and says, you know, I find that people don't like being criticized. Uh, you know, I, th- I think that's actually why my parents got divorced. <laughs> Uh, the lack of criticism often translates to the presence of love. Isn't that true? Yeah. 100%. Um, 100%. All right, you two. Blessings in the midst of February. Bye. 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 Remember me. Though I have to say goodbye, remember me. Don't let it make you cry. For even if I'm far away, I hold you in my heart. I sing a secret song to you each night we are apart. Remember me, though I have to travel far. Remember me, each time you hear a sad guitar. Know that I'm with you the only way that I can be. Until you're in my arms again, remember me. Thank you for listening. 
Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Bye.